0: Hello there Friders and hello from the other side. (laughs) And by that, I mean we have made it through 2020. I'm not going to say anything about 2021 like not today, Satan, but I will say we made it through 2020. And I feel like that is a huge freaking deal because we did it. And talking about New Year's, I want to thank you all. I am going to get real for just a minute. Um, and so I started this podcast in honestly one of my lowest moments, especially in 2020. Uh, I was I was placed on furlough because of Rona, that dang Rona, and I was training to start a position in within the company i was working for which would have been a promotion it was something i was stoked about and really excited about getting started in and i started this podcast because i had thought about doing one for a while and i was tired of sitting in front of the tv because gyms were closed and the outside was scary so i put my time to this and to all y'all out there that are kind enough to listen it means a lot thank you so much everyone you're awesome and this year I am hoping for big things with this podcast that's one of my ambitions for the year 2021 is just to keep this going and I'm definitely going to keep the podcast going come hell or high water but just hoping that it gets bigger more people start listening um And I just hope I keep putting out content that you enjoy because you guys are amazing and I'm just shocked and amazed that anyone even listens to my annoying voice. So, thank you guys again. And on that note, let's get into this week's wild one. And this is the case of Charles Chuck Morgan. I'm going to refer to him as Chuck because that was what most people called him. But this episode takes place in Tucson, Arizona, and it takes place during a time where I was not alive or even a thought yet. It occurred in 1977. And like I said, guys, strap in for this roller coaster of a case. I may or may not be kind of obsessed with it. I just was searching Google for a case and I came across this. I'd never heard of it before. There's a whole Reddit thread about it, so I'm probably one of the only ones, but I hadn't looked too much into this case or really ever even heard of it, and I want this dang thing to be solved. But anyway, Chuck Morgan was an escrow agent. He actually owned his own escrow business, And if you are like me and have no idea what that means or entails, don't worry, I googled it. Mostly for me, but you guys will benefit from the knowledge that I found. And when I say knowledge, I mean the most basic of basic knowledge of what this is. So, an escrow agent processes and finalizes real estate deals, making sure all agreements are met, and they complete all of the legal paperwork. Like I said, this is the most basic layman's description. Honestly, when I looked it up on Google, I had no idea what it was saying, so I had to Google it with in layman's terms. So that's what I got with that. So anyway, (laughs) but before we get into the events, I'm going to just give you a little bit of information on Tucson, Arizona in the 1970s. So due to state laws, at the time, the mafia was very attracted to <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. The state law was such that anyone was allowed to buy up land through blind trusts. This allowed money to be laundered easily and it could not be traced. And this made it a great place to work narcotics because you, you're close to Mexico, But it also became their safe place for laundering money because it was so easy due to these state laws. So because of this, the mafia and racketeers moved to Arizona to do their business. This caused an increase in murders and deaths in this area, particularly particularly gang style murders. So Tucson became like the Wild West in this time. And with that, I can only believe corruption followed. I can't be sure and I didn't see anything about it, but with organized crime like that, it's kind of like a virus that spreads and I just in a in a lot of cases like this, most of the time you see corruption follows. So now let us go to march twenty second nineteen seventy seven like I said, Chuck was an escrow agent in Tucson, Arizona. He was 39 years old and had a wife named Ruth. And I saw two different numbers of children. I saw two children and I, cho- and I saw four children. And from what I saw in research, it was daughters he had. And from the research, I, I would say that two kids makes the most sense with what they said in the research, but I have seen both, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, but March twenty second, 1977 started off like any other day. On Chuck's way to work, he would drop off his daughters at school, and this day was no different, except for one thing. Chuck didn't return home from work that evening, and when Ruth got worried, like most wives would. She somehow called the office, called the coworker, something like that. And she found out that he hadn't even shown up to work that day. And like I said, he owns his own business. So that's weird to begin with. So she filed a missing persons report on him and didn't hear anything for a couple of days. After three days of no information, Ruth hears a little bit of a commotion outside of their house. She hears dogs barking and things like their dogs barking and things like that, which to me, hearing a commotion outside like your door is one thing and it's enough to freak anyone out. But let alone hearing a commotion when your husband has just been missing for three days and you have no idea where he is like that's just kind of freaky and I I give her her props uh mama bear came out because she was home with her kids when she heard the dogs barking she went down to investigate heard something at the back door and opened it I mean she opened the door I I don't even know like If I could do that, I'd be like the person that was like pulling back this like side screen a little bit, like making hoping that they can't see me looking to see who they are. But anyway, she opened the door and she saw her husband, Chuck. He looked a mess, obviously. I mean, the dude's been gone for three days. He was missing a shoe. He had a plastic handcuff around one ankle, and his hands were zip-tied. He motioned to his throat, and obviously, without because he didn't say anything, he just motioned to his throat. Ruth had no idea what was going on and didn't understand and began asking him questions. Through this, she ended up getting him a piece of paper and pen so he could communicate with her. And when they were communicating he let her know that he had been kidnapped and tortured. And he said that he had a hallucinogenic drug painted on his throat. And he couldn't talk because if this drug was ingested, it would at best drive him irrevocably insane. And at worst, the drug would kill him. So Ruth's immediate reaction like mine would be and I think most normal people's would be was that they needed to call the police and get the police involved but Chuck told her no don't do that because it would put all of us in danger which makes me wonder it was just a random thought I had while writing this script but it makes me wonder she filed a missing persons report so what did they say to the police when he came back did they say anything it was like I couldn't find anything and they didn't Say anything about it, but I was just like, But if he said don't get the police involved, then what did you tell the police when he came back, or did you just let them think that he was still missing? I don't know. Anyway, um, Chuck also asked Ruth to move his car because he didn't want quote unquote them to know that he was back, that he was at home. So for a week, this saint of a woman, Ruth fed him, and nursed him back to health. She fed him with an eyedropper so that there was no risk of the hallucinogenic drugs getting in his system. And during this time, he seemed to hint at being a secret agent for the government and hinted at having another identity and that his other like identity treasury card had been stolen. Or, yeah, his other ID card, his ID card for this other identity had been stolen. But again, this was not explicitly said, just sort of hinted at. And eventually, he was back to tip-top shape and back to health, but rightfully so, he was super freaking paranoid. After his kidnapping, he went around wearing a bulletproof vest Also, he spoke to the principal and administrators at his daughter's school and said that the only person that they could get in a car with and that they could be released to was him. He didn't even add Ruth. He just said he was the only person that could pick them up. No one else. And so other than being super paranoid and taking more precautions for the next two months, things Went back to as normal as they can after you've been kidnapped and tortured. Um, But after those two months, two months after his first disappearance and two months of complete paranoia, Chuck disappeared again. This time he wasn't back after three days. It was nine days before Ruth heard anything And what she heard and this interaction, to me, only adds to the mystery of all of this. So, nine days later, Ruth picks up a call from an unknown anonymous woman. All this woman said to Ruth was, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Obviously, this is a Bible scripture, and I have translated it not translated but i i got this the part of the scripture for you and in the new international version of the bible this states remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say i find no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the window grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered and the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So, yeah, that that's that scripture. Um and sadly, two days after Ruth received this call, Chuck's body was found in the Arizona desert. He was found about 40 miles west of Tucson, where he was living at the time. And he was found shot in the back of his head. And he was shot with his thirty-five caliber Magnum revolver. There were no fingerprints found on the gun. Not even When it was his gun, like I said. The gunshot was from his thirty-five caliber Magnum revolver, and there was no fingerprint found on the gun. So, obviously, it was wiped clean. Also, there was a $2 bill clipped to his underwear. On this bill, there was scribbled Spanish surnames with letters from A to G. Also, going back to that Bible scripture, Ecclesiastes 12 was written on the dollar bill and using the serial numbers on the on the two dollar bill that was attached to his underwear. There were arrows pointing from the one to the eight on that two dollar bill. Obviously, this is the same verse referenced by the mystery caller. And there was a roughly drawn map of an area between Tucson and Mexico. The areas were Rubles Junction and Sala City, which both at the time were known for smuggling. And sorry, I'm American. I know I probably said those wrong. But um, Chuck, at the time of his death, was wearing his bulletproof vest, like I said, ever since his first kidnapping, he'd been wearing a bulletproof vest, and he had a belt that concealed a knife and a holster. His car was found very soon after because it was so close to his body, and when they found the car, his car had been modified to unlock from the fender, which is odd, and I don't really know how that happens, but anyway, it was modified to unlock and open from the fender. In the car, they found more ammunition, weapons, a CB radio, and they found one of his teeth in a handkerchief on one of the seats of his car. Two days after his body was found, the Pima County Sheriff's Department received a call from a woman stating that she was the one that had called Ruth and that for more than a week prior to his death, so about the time of his second disappearance, they had met in a motel. The woman would only refer to herself as Green Eyes. She said he had a suitcase full of cash and that he had told her he had a hit out on his life and that the money in the suitcase was going to go to the hitman. Apparently, the hitman told him that there was a hit out on his life and that for a certain amount of money, he would call off the hit and wouldn't go through with it. So, he was... He was trying to buy back his life, essentially. It is said that maybe he brought the money to give to the hitman but the hitman just took the money and killed him anyway I mean for a hitman like that's it just gives him more money because he just steals the money this is this was a thought because the suitcase and the money weren't found so they thought that the hitman probably just told him that he could buy out the hit on his life. He went to meet him to give him the money and the hitman killed him anyway. I don't know. What? I don't know if that's the case. Obviously, like I said, this is unsolved. But not long after Chuck's death, two men that were claiming to be FBI agents came to Ruth and Chuck's house and they tore it apart. They, like, ruined everything. Everything just went crazy, there were things all over the place, and they were seemingly searching for something. And they also seemingly did not find it by the time they left. Ruth was distraught over her husband's death and the aggressiveness of these men that she thought were FBI, that she didn't get their names, and because they flashed their badges so quickly, she's not even 100% sure that they were part of the FBI. That's just what they said, and they flashed a badge quickly. But a journalist named Don Devereaux says that years later, he tried to file a Freedom of Information Act on this case, and even though the FBI was involved with the case from early on, they claimed that they had no idea who Chuck Morgan was, which is really freaking weird. Finally, it is said that Chuck told his father he had hidden a note clarifying the responsible party if something were to happen to him. So apparently somewhere out there, there's a hidden note that basically will clarify everything, and it's in Chuck's own handwriting, and it states who is responsible for his death. In 2006, Ruth died from cancer, sadly, but Chuck's daughters have taken up the fight and do not believe this was a suicide. So there are some theories. Like I said, this is still unsolved, but there are a couple of possibilities. According to the Pima County Sheriff's Department, they claim it was a suicide they stuck with this theory, and to, the, to my knowledge, they still believe this to be the case. The only thing is that, I mean, he was shot in the back of the head. That would be really hard to maneuver. And there was gunshot residue found, but the gunshot residue was found on his left hand, but Chuck was right-handed. So that's just a little odd. You're not using your dominant hand and it's the back of your head. It's just a weird set of circumstances. Also, it seems as though the medical examiner can't even fully say that this is a cut and dry suicide because they've listed this as an unsolved death. So basically, it being an unsolved death, they're saying, we can't say it's not suicide, but we can't say it is suicide. So, there's that. There's another theory that Chuck, an escrow agent, was working for the mafia and helping them launder money. But that he had recently given testimony against the mafia and the crime family that he was working for in a government case into a legal activity. Don Devereaux believed he got in way over his head and decided to help the government's investigation. This is kind of backed up-ish because Ruth said that Chuck would not talk about his work. And he would say to her, the less, you know, the better it is for you and the girls. And he told her in the past that he was not involved, but that there was a lot of money laundering going on. I don't know if the daughters specifically, I don't think they specifically believe that he was in on the money laundering at any point. And then decided to help into the case against illegal activity. But like their mother before them, they feel this wasn't suicide. They feel that as an escrow agent and having been aware of money laundering, that he knew too much and was murdered to protect the interests of corrupt businessmen and politicians. People who are still alive and working in the government And they just think that they wanted to protect themselves, so they silenced Chuck. Along these lines, it's also said that he had no part in money laundering, but he was like an undercover government person (laughs) that was trying to get information on the illegal mafia activity in Tucson. People believe that this is supported by the $2 bill. Some believe that the things that were written on the $2 bill, the Spanish surnames, A to G, the Ecclesiastes, like all of these were hidden messages for the FBI that had to do with the case against illegal activity in Tucson and the mafia. So... I'm not 100% sure where I fall on this. It's definitely unsolved. The only thing I know is that this was... I don't think this was a suicide. If, If it was, I just don't see why... Why he would have disappeared the first time and then disappeared again. Like, it just seems really odd to me. And just all of the weird... Oddities having to do with the case and the fact that he wore a bulletproof vest. I mean, that seemingly says he wanted to keep himself safe, not that he was suicidal. I don't know, it just seems really odd that it would be suicide. I think that one of the other two theories is more likely whether he was in over his head and was assisting in this illegal activity but then decided that he didn't want to do that anymore and testified against them. And then they silenced him because that's kind of what happens. Or he was an undercover agent. I, I don't know which one of those it is, but I definitely believe that it's not a suicide. And that is this week's case of Fight or Fright. I don't have a fright is over this week <laughs> time kind of got away from me um and I wanted to get you guys an episode so I'm sorry about that I'll be back to that next week but that's this episode of fight or fright and please feel free to reach out to me on social media you can dm me at um fight or fright pod on instagram Fighter Fright Pod on Facebook, Fight Fright Pod on Twitter, Fighter Fright Pod at gmail.com and Holland Elise on TikTok. <laughs> I just cre- recreated a TikTok thing and I, I changed my my handle from before, but I still have TikTok and it's super fun It's not just true crime stuff, even though that's a lot of it. I also am my weird, wacky self on it. So, um, but feel free to reach out to me. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode, and I will be back.